very happy to welcome to WPCAN's Airwaves, Bob Schwartz. Bob is the Vice President of Global Health Partners, which is a nonprofit organization committed to improving the health of children and their families in Latin America through active partnership uh, with regional and community-based health care organizations. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's, nice, it's nice to be here with you tonight, Richard. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for, for doing this. You can tell us actually a bit about Global Health Partners probably better than I can. So why don't we start there, uh, just talk a little bit more about your organization and the scope and focus of the, uh, the work that you do. Sure. Well, as you, as you described, we work with healthcare institutions in Latin America, primarily with ministries of health, because we're looking to build self-sustaining healthcare systems wherever we can. And I literally fell into Cuba. I know you want to talk Cuba. I went down in 1994 for the first time, and it was during a, what they call their special period. Uh, there were no med medicines at all in the country, and I helped to deliver a large donation of insulin. I think it was a three-month supply of insulin for their entire insulin diabetic population. One thing led to another, and uh, over the past 27 years, uh, we've delivered roughly $190 million worth of medicines and medical supplies. I've taken Muhammad Ali to Cuba twice on humanitarian missions, uh, two former U.S. Surgeons General and probably three dozen or more surgical teams from across the United States who train Cuban doctors in all sorts of advanced state-of-the-art surgical techniques. So that's, in a nutshell, my background. Impressive, indeed. Just before we move into the conversation about Cuba, I'd like to find out if Global Health Partners deals with any other Latin American countries, and if so, which, which ones have Oh, been? sure. We're involved in, right now, we're involved in Nicaragua, in Bolivia and El Salvador. And, you know, we're, we're a small, lean, mean uh, organization. Folks can take a look at our website, and they'll see we try to give a big bang for the buck so we don't run where, uh, you know, the latest uh, crisis is unfolding in the world. We tend to, to stick to certain countries, and we, we focus on them and drill down, and we, we try to build deeper relationships. So Cuba, you know, Cuba is particularly challenging because of the embargo as you might imagine. Uh, we don't encounter any of the same challenges with any other country that we work in. Well, we do want to talk about Cuba and, and their public health system, mm -hmm. and it's obviously a function of a, uh, a socialist government, a socialist economy. There's interesting, uh, somewhat remarkable and astounding, I would say, developments there with their public health system. I was actually in Cuba until the very end of February of 2020. I got back to the States, you know, just before the end of February, so I missed out on the um, the threats that I might have encountered flying on airplanes and stuff like that. But I was wearing a mask, <laughs> which I do on any any time I get on an airplane. So the pandemic had not yet really risen its ugly head in um, Mexico and Cuba where I was visiting, but it certainly did shortly thereafter. But why don't you just tell us a little bit about your sense of what the Cuban health care system is about, how public health works in Cuba, and then we can get into this really interesting conversation. I think it was Helen, is, am I right about this, Helen Yaffe? Helen Yaffe, and yeah, yeah. researcher in, in uh, Scotland. Mm -hmm. Right, who wrote a, a, an article for Counterpunch magazine. Uh, Correct. She's got a book out now about the Cuban healthcare system. Fascinating read. 
So we'll, we'll get to her in a moment. But sure. Um, yeah, just give us your overview of the Cuban uh, public health system and the Cuban system health well, system in general. You know, it's a Cuban. The Cuban healthcare system is unlike anything you'll find anywhere else in the world. And uh, I think what would be most attractive to your listeners is it's it's built on a preventative system as opposed to a curative system, meaning the Cubans figured out decades ago that it's cheaper uh, and you can add to longevity and healthier lives if you prevent disease or catch disease early uh, rather than treating it uh, once somebody is sick uh, because there's there's not the same profit motive uh, that exists here. So, you know, the, the, the thing that most of the doctors that we take to Cuba, and they're world-class surgeons, uh, the thing that they're fascinated most about is they're actually practicing medicine as opposed to the business of medicine. Two very, very different things. You know, my doctor, for example, only sees me when I'm sick. He doesn't know what I look like when I'm healthy. Uh, in, the, in the Cuban system, doctors live in the neighborhood, so they know what you look like when you're, when you're healthy as well as when you're, when you're ill. Uh, they're not paid on the basis of the number of patients or the number of surgeries that they complete each day. So they could spend more time with you. They could examine you. They can ask questions. Uh, those are things that, you know, we don't experience up here. Uh, and you're treated with a, a respect and a dignity uh, throughout their public health system uh, that you just don't find here. You're not just a number. They treat you as if you're their mom or dad. So those are the, the, the quick takes that I would have on, you know, what the Cuban healthcare system looks like. It's, it's basically a pyramid where the, the base of their foundation is the, the local doctor, the doctor who lives next door to you or two blocks away from you. And it, it goes from there. If that doctor can't deal with your problem, they move you up to a primary care clinic. If they, they can't deal with it or the problem is more severe, you move up to a hospital or a tertiary facility. But they're basically able to keep costs down and uh, save lives because of the way that system works. Uh, it's, it's just a fascinating system. You know, my feeling is overall, Cuba, uh, they pull well over their weight. You know, they, they really punch well over their weight in education, in public health, and in biotechnology. I don't think you can find anything that comes close to it anywhere in the world. Thank you for that, Bob. I, I want to now turn to this uh, article by Helen Yaffe, which uh, I, I thought I'd read the first few sentences of it because it, in a very uh, droll way points out these issues we're talking about, the profit healthcare system versus nonprofit. And uh, she writes that British Prime Minister Boris Johnson told a group of Conservative Party backbenchers, the reason we have the vaccine success is because of capitalism, because of greed, my friends. Johnson was articulating the dogma that the pursuit of private profit through the capitalist free markets leads to efficient outcomes. In reality, however, Britain's accomplishments in developing the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine and in the national vaccine rollout have more to do with the state investments than the market mechanism. Government money subsidized the vaccine development at the University of Oxford, and it is the um, state-funded National Health Service that has carried out the vaccination program. 
So Johnson did not admit that it was due to capitalism and greed that Britain now has the fifth worst COVID mortality rate in the world with over 126,500 deaths, almost 1,857 per million people in the population and counting. So what he is saying there is that it, it requires the, the market energy of the free market to generate all this kind of movement toward development and innovation, in this case in the healthcare field. So when we compare his perspective on UK with, with what you just said about Cuba, we see the difference between a for-profit capitalist model and a not-for-profit socialist model. You mentioned bio, uh, bio biotechnology, biotechnology <laughs> and the pharmaceutical industry in Cuba. To talk about this, uh, these really astonishing developments that have happened since COVID, one thing to remark on is that during the early days when uh, Donald Trump was uh, trying to get everybody to take chloroquine, Cuba was actually de had developed, or they had it, they actually previously developed a medicine that had was apparently proving to be somewhat effective in ameliorating the worst effects of COVID. And they were partnering with China and some other private companies to experiment with it and to use it on patients in different parts of the world with some positive results. We never heard about that. We never heard about that it was developed, that it was available, that Cuba offered it to us. None of that ever reached our shores. But now, with COVID in, in its full bloom, the, the race is on to develop vaccines. So tell us about the, the story about the, the Cuban search for not just one, but five vaccines. Well, you're, cover, you're covering a lot of ground here, Richard. <laughs> uh, let me just say that Helen Yaffe's article is a must read for, for your listeners. Uh, and it's a sad indictment on the way the UK handled the COVID response. In truth, it was, it was not all that different than our president's response. Sadly, in the early days of, of COVID, he refused to admit, our president refused to admit that there was a crisis, and that would be over in a matter of days or weeks. Uh, you left Cuba in February. So in March, you'll recall, Cuba shut down the country completely. Uh, tremendous economic cost. But at the, sign, the same time, they reacted proactively, something our government and the UK didn't do. Uh, they mounted a high visibility education campaign. Mask wearing was not politicized. So everybody was wearing a mask. It was their their duty as citizens to wear masks. They understood social distancing, which is not easy to do in Havana, as you probably experienced. Yeah. Um, they, they sent doctors and medical students door to door to check on patients and to make sure everybody was well. So from the, the get-go, there was a, uh, an attempt to mitigate COVID as best they could. And they kept the numbers down very well up until they reopened uh, flights in November. And from that point forward, uh, COVID has kind of taken hold again. But to your question on biotechnology, it's not an accident that Cuba is developing, as you said, five vaccines for COVID, two of which are in phase three trials. They've just completed those trials, and they've got a very robust rollout plan for two of the vaccines. Uh, once once they're approved for national use, their hope is that they will 
inoculate the entire population of Havana by the end of May, uh, roughly 1.7 people will be vaccinated, and they will try their best to vaccinate the rest of the country by the end of the year. Uh, but the, the reason it's not an accident is that the biotech sector was developed in the 80s, and it was a dream of their president at the time, Fidel Castro. It was a part of his internationalist perspective. Uh, he was going to put his scientists to work on diseases that the major biotech companies, the major global pharmaceutical companies were not addressing. And he was not thinking of selling those drugs. He was thinking of giving them away, especially in the developing world, because, as you know, the developing world is always the last to receive medicines. So the, the biotech sector in Cuba, which I think is almost three dozen different institutions, has been working since the 80s, and they developed their own vaccines. Children get vaccines when they're kids before they go to school. Their vaccine industry, if you want to call it industry, is very sophisticated, and they've, they've invested quite a bit in it. So they immediately moved on COVID. They've got five vaccines, as you said. They've got other drugs that they have been using fairly successfully in terms of mitigating uh, the impact of COVID, similar to the monoclonal antibodies that we're now using here. But the design is to give those, those uh, vaccines away, obviously, to the Cuban people will be for free. Uh, to some of uh, the developing world countries that can't afford vaccines, I would guess that they will give the vaccines away for free and then probably on a sliding scale, but it'll be at a much cheaper price than U.S. drugs and U.S. vaccines, which ironically were developed. A lot of them were developed under Operation Warp Speed with taxpayer funding. So a lot of the, a lot of the companies that are now making billions of dollars off of vaccines here in the United States and abroad did that on, on our dime, so to speak. But the, the Cubans have a, a major investment of capital, you know, just not, not just money, but of uh, resources, personnel. And it's, it's fascinating. I've spent a lot of time with them. In addition to the vaccine, I, I don't want to get stuck on the vaccine. They've got a drug that is roughly 83% effective in curing diabetic foot ulcers. We have 60 to 80,000 Americans who have amputations every year as a result of diabetic foot ulcers. And wouldn't it be amazing, you know, when we talk north, south, south, north, wouldn't it be amazing if there was some collaboration between the United States and Cuba and Americans could avail themselves of a drug like that? So that's, that's my take on the, uh, the vaccine in the Cuban biotech sector. I can go on and on about it because they've got a, a very robust plan. Obviously, they can't sell in the United States because of the embargo. One of the uh, wonderful collateral damage that we uh, sustain here as Americans because of the embargo. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about how Cuba is faring in terms of the percentage of its population that has been affected or infected with the COVID virus and you know how, how their mortality rate is as compared to other countries in Latin America and globally? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's challenging to compare them to the rest of Latin America because Cuba is testing at a rate unlike any other country. So they're, they're constantly testing, and anybody who comes into Cuba these days is also tested and is also quarantined. Um, the numbers I had 
as of, I think, the end of March, is that Cuba had 76,000 positive cases and only 425 deaths. I don't think on our best day uh, we've had so, that number of deaths in probably a year. But the numbers are very transparent. Every day they're publishing their data. Every day their Ministry of Health goes on television and briefs the country. There's, there's no effort to, uh, to hide the toll that this is taking, the human toll this is taking. And the emphasis is still on wearing masks, social distancing, washing your hands, the basics of what uh, Fauci was talking about from the very beginning. Yeah, I think uh, the numbers that I, if I have it this right, in terms of percentage of infection and, and mortality in Cuba is, is down below 2%. It's somewhere just over 1% as compared with, uh, you know, UK, which is, I believe, two and a half ish or a little bit higher and globally, which is up in that range as well. So Cuba is doing 100% better than those, those other... They're doing better. You know, I, 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 I hate making those comparisons because it, it, it becomes politicized. But the reality is they're doing everything they possibly can to mitigate COVID. And it's not easy because, you know, with, with the embargo firmly in place and despite the promises that our president made during the campaign... There's still no change in Cuba policy. All of the more onerous Trump executive orders remain in place. So there are problems with food. There are problems with medicine right now. And a lot of the, that is uh, it could be mitigated by a change in U.S. policy. But I think they're doing a, uh, as, as good a job as they possibly can to try to keep the numbers low. I somehow came to the impression that the embargo did not cover or affect medical supplies. Am I mistaken there? Well, it, it, it does and it doesn't. Uh, and, you know, having, having shipped to Cuba uh, for the past 27 years, uh, I can tell you it has a tremendous impact. Very, very simply, things like computers, ventilators, which were in tremendous demand during the uh, early days of COVID, on patent medications that are manufactured in the United States are either very difficult to get, or when Cuba places an order, uh, the pharmaceutical company doesn't want to want to deal with them. Nobody wants to run afoul of the Treasury Department, basically, and they've been very punitive uh, when it comes to violations of uh, export law. So it, it's easier for most of our companies uh, not to deal with Cuba rather than to rather than to sell, and when they do sell. Uh, the prices are completely out of the ballpark. I took a, a company down that manufactures pacemakers, for example, and Cuba cannot get pacemakers that are of U.S. origin. The prices were probably four times as, as much as they're paying in China. Uh, but that's, that's the reality of our, our health care system. So, you know, whether, whether meds are, are, are legal to sell to Cuba, which they, which they are, you still can't get most most of the major drug companies to to sell. We're speaking with Bob Schwartz, who's the vice president of Global Health Partners, and you can find them at ghpartners.org. Did I get that right, Bob? You got that right. Okay. And they do work in several Latin American countries, and Bob has been focused on Cuba since 1994 and uh, obviously has come away with very deep knowledge of what goes on in that country with regard to public health. 
Bob, is there anything else that you think we haven't covered that... <laughs> no, <laughs> we, what we could spend hours talking yeah, Cuba, uh, we're talking Latin America. But let me, let me throw out an interesting challenge that some of your listeners might be interested in. Cuba may be presented with a really interesting problem that we can help to, to resolve. Assuming these vaccines make it through their phase three trials, Cuba intends to vaccinate its entire population by the end of the year. They're going to need between 25 and 30 million syringes, these disposable syringes. So we're in the process of looking to mount a campaign to send syringes to Cuba. It's something that we've previously had licensed by the government. Remember, everything we send to Cuba has to be licensed by the Commerce Department. It's not as if we can just send a container with uh, 10 million syringes down to Cuba. But it's a campaign that we're looking at mounting in the next couple of weeks. So if people are interested, they can go to our website. It may well be, Richard, one of the most important things that I have ever done anywhere in Latin America. Uh, the idea of being able to help vaccinate 10 million people uh, is a tremendous opportunity. It would be a shame if they had the vaccine and they didn't have the syringes. One of the striking uh, challenges that they deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So your campaign will be uh, soliciting donations from private people, private individuals. Correct. Through your, through your website? Correct. Okay, and that, again, is the organization called Global Health Partners, ghpartners.org. And Bob Schwartz has, has been our guest here today. Bob, it's been an exhilarating conversation with you. I'm so glad that we connected and were able to do this. Last comment on your sense of just the continuation, the endless continuation of this Cold War game being played by the United States with regards to Cuba. How do you even come to grips with that, uh, with what you know about Cuba, but also about the absolute inhumanity of that embargo and the cruel sanctions put well, on... I'm, I'm an optimist, so yeah. <laughs> I think you, you've got to take anything I say with a grain of salt. But, you know, I've, I've felt from the very beginning that the, the embargo is immoral, it's illegal, and it, it kills. It's a form of economic warfare that kills just as surely as bullets and bombs. And the Cuban pay, people have paid a tremendous price for uh, a policy that basically originates in Miami, is designed in Miami, and uh, satisfies a small group of right-wing voters that has been able to make their voices heard inordinately every election. And, you know, I think it's time Biden had promised during the campaign that he would revisit it and he would go back to normalization, which certainly isn't perfect. But the Obama normalization was certainly better than what our president, uh, President Trump had created over his four years. The Cubans are suffering tremendously from the embargo. As you said, it's a vestige of the Cold War. And my feeling is it should be ended immediately. So let's hope we see something a little better from the, the Biden administration than we had over the past four years. I certainly hope so. I hope his foreign policy starts to move in the direction of his domestic policy, which is surprisingly progressive so far. But the uh, foreign policy stuff that we're seeing is not all that encouraging globally, and, but we can certainly hope for the best with, with Cuba. I'm but, with you on that, <laughs> 100%. All right, Bob. Thank you all so right. much for joining us tonight. Uh, uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, and we'll, we'll check 
back with you again because this is such inf important information that we are denied here in, our, in the United Terrific, States. Richard. Well, I right. enjoyed being with you, and I hope to talk to you again. All right. Thanks, Bob. All righty. Have a good evening. You too. That's Bob Schwartz. He's the vice president of Global Health Partners, which is a nonprofit organization committed to improving the health of children and their families in Latin America through the active partnership with regional and community-based healthcare organizations. Bob joined us from New York City tonight.